Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Everything Athletes. I'm your host, Kim Carducci, former Division I swimmer and existential thinker. Everything Athletes is an online refuge helping athletes navigate the toughest moments on their journey, those moments being defeat, injury, and retirement. These moments are tough for sure, but hopefully with a bit of guidance and insights in our content and in these podcast episodes, the hurt hurts less. Today's topic is super good, super good, I guess. I will break this out into two episodes because there's a lot of content here, but the question that I'll be answering in these episodes is, what is good mental health, right? We talk about all of the things about mental health, like we define depression and we define anxiety and we're really good at knowing what incites those particular feelings. And I feel like as a collective society, as a collective community, we've become really good over the past few years in particular at understanding what mental health looks like and what are the signs of someone possibly struggling with their mental health. And that's great. But now I feel like it's beneficial and helpful to actually understand, okay, what does good mental health look like? I'm a person that learns by example. I have to see a role model or someone else doing something for me to really understand that it's possible to do that. So I wanted to take this episode and share my recipe, my ingredients for how I live with quote unquote good mental health. There's a number of things that I actually do. There are a number of things that are just perspective shifts in my own mind. And then there are some things that I'm just simply aware of. How I define good mental health for me in my life, for me, it's twofold. So first, I just feel generally less affected by things. And second, I know that no matter what happens in my life, good, bad, ugly, I have the established knowledge, I have the established tools, and I have resources to reach out to to help me navigate the tough stuff. And that's really comforting. No matter what happens, I know I can get through it. That's a level of confidence that historically has not been in my life. I've always succumbed to, oh, this is so hard. Everything's so hard. I can't do this. Or I've been overwhelmed by negativity. I've been so prone to negativity. But now I just have a a calm level of confidence that no matter what happens, I'll be able to get through it. And everyone's definition of good mental health will change. It will look different for every individual because every individual is different and every life journey is different. But for me, being generally less affected by things and then having that established knowledge, those two together just help me live a stable, calm, rooted, consistent life that I feel like I can manage and can easily access more positive feelings when I have these two combined in my life. So being less affected, I used to be so affected by everything. I'm a sensitive person. I can be emotional at times. It could be one comment from somebody that would just really hurt my feelings. Or if someone didn't totally agree with me, I would just be derailed for days. I would be lost in anxious thinking. I would lose confidence. I was just The best way to describe it is I was just so affected by everything. 
And that's for the good and the bad. My highs were really high and my lows were really low. And historically, I would just get sucked into that sensitivity at the drop of a hat. I had no gates to my mind. Everything was able to come in and affect me, whether good or bad. And and for the bad, it led to a lot of anxiety. And for the established knowledge or for the established tools, I feel like I've observed and learned so much, just especially over the past couple years, just in reading and listening to podcasts and going to therapy, I have so many more practices and perspectives and things I can do and things I can think about to help me manage whatever comes up. And like I said, that's just a comforting level of confidence in my life. So let's run through the list of my ingredients for how I live my life with good mental health. The lifestyle principles I have, the perspectives that I have, the things that I do, and the things I do not do. I have 14 bullet points on this list, so bear with me. The first one, it actually ties into last week's episode, but before getting into any thinking or anything about the mind, it really is just to eliminate alcohol and caffeine and watch what you're actually putting in your body. I won't dive into this too deep because I put this all in last week's episode, but alcohol and caffeine are known to contribute to feelings of anxiety and depression. And for me, someone who's sensitive and has those highs and lows, you know, if I'm going to be anxious or if I'm going to be depressed, okay, I'll, I'll do my best to manage it. But I want those feelings to have to work so incredibly hard to even enter my mind. I want anxiety to have to beg, crawl, scream, kick, and fight to enter my mind. I don't want to make it easy for those negative feelings or feelings that I don't want to be in my mind. So by eliminating alcohol and caffeine, and again, on last week's episode, I I don't eliminate it totally 100%. I'll have a drink every now and then. I'll sometimes have an espresso every now and then. But I have, for the most part, cut out alcohol and caffeine. And I think that's such a game changer when it comes to feelings of anxiety and depression. So that's number one. Number two, another physical thing before we really get into our mind is exercise. I, in particular, always feel better when my body feels tight and I have soreness in my muscles and I know I did a good workout and especially after I do a good deep stretch. I play a lot of tennis now. I was a swimmer growing up, but... I play a lot of tennis now. I am a sucker for boutique fitness classes. I love going to Barry's Boot Camp. I love going to Sculpt House here in Atlanta. I love going to yoga. And everyone is different, but I think for me, exercise has to be one of the most important things for me because everything else could be crumbling to pieces in my life. But if I know that my body feels good and I feel healthy and I feel strong, everything is that much better. I don't know why it affects me so much. I think I just, maybe because I'm a super sensitive person, even just the feeling of my body, just like feeling tight and feeling my muscles, feeling strong, that affects me. That For some reason, that just really affects me. So when I exercise, which I go to the classes, I play a bunch of tennis, I have matches, I do tennis lessons. I love getting out there and moving around and exercising. And that certainly helps my mental health as well. The third one is what I call iceberg thinking. And I won't say that this has cured my anxiety. Cured is a very strong word. 
but I will say this has drastically reduced the amount of anxiety that I do have in my life. And for me, I'm not a generally anxious person. I'm definitely more prone to depressive feelings, but my anxiety would come from social situations. So I was the type of person who I would constantly wonder, what are they thinking about me? Do they like me? Do they not like me? What can I do to have them like me? I have this fear of being disliked. And I was constantly wondering, okay, what can I say to not offend them? And am I saying the right things? And am I doing the right things? And do they think I'm stupid? And should I be doing this? And I would, I would have so much social anxiety interacting with people. And here's a really good example of anxiety that just happened to me a couple weeks ago of iceberg thinking, which iceberg thinking to me, how I define it is if you think of an iceberg, you have 10% of the iceberg above the surface and you have 90% of the iceberg below the surface. So the 10% of the iceberg above the surface is what actually happens in your life. It's the events at face value. It's things that you can actually see. It's what actually happens. The 90% of the iceberg below the surface is your thinking and rumination and anxious thoughts about what's happening above the surface. So when you get lost diving down deep and thinking all these anxious thoughts of, oh, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? That's that's getting stuck below the surface and that's where anxiety grows. So when I say iceberg thinking, it's it's a bit of tough love. It's not some secret magic potion. It's kind of checking yourself and giving yourself tough love and making the decision, making the deliberate decision to say, okay, well, I have the 10% up here above the surface. I don't have evidence for what, all of the thoughts I'm thinking below the surface. Why am I going to spend all that negative energy ruminating and being anxious when I don't know for sure that that's what's actually happening. Okay, so here's the example. So I'm on my tennis team and we have a whole bunch of girls on the team, but every week, 10 women play. There are five lines, it's women's doubles. So there are five lines, two women play per line. So there were 10 players. So this particular week, we had 11 players that were available. And it was the first match of the season. We had some new girls on the team, but But for some reason, I was the 11th girl out for this week. So everyone played their match except for me. Now, my historical negative anxious thinking would directly go to all of the reasons why I was the only one singled out and not playing. Hmm, maybe they don't like me anymore. Do they not want me on their team anymore? Why am I the only one not playing? Maybe I should just quit the team. (laughs) Did I do something that angered them or bothered them? You know, what? Why am I the only one out? And I would get lost in that 90% of the iceberg below the surface, wondering all of the negative anxious thoughts. But it can also go the other way. If you just indulge yourself and maybe do the positive opposite of what you're thinking. Hmm, I'm the only one singled out. Maybe my coach knows my level of skill. She knows I'm talented. So she doesn't need to see my level of play. We have all these new girls. Maybe she's putting all the new girls in the lineup first to see how they're going to play so she can better gauge their level of skill for the next match. Or even a different scenario, maybe because of schedules, some girls couldn't make the further matches in the season, even though I'm available most of the matches. So maybe she sat me out the first match knowing I could play more later on in the season. Who knows? But the point of this example is with iceberg thinking, whether it's the negative scenario I'm playing out 
or the positive scenario I'm playing out, I'm getting stuck below the surface in that 90% where I don't have evidence for one way or the other. Like, what's the point of wasting all that energy and emotion and thought wondering why something's happening when I can just go above the surface, choose to look at the 10% of, okay, well, I was the only one not chosen to play this week. I really don't know why one way or the other. I'm going to choose to just say, okay, well, there's there's a good reason for it. I'm staying at the 10% of the iceberg above the surface, and I'm not going to waste time or torture myself by getting stuck and drowning. And then just on the note of anxiety, there are two other things I try to do most of the time to help reduce anxiety. So the first one is to over-communicate, and the second one is to actually follow what my gut says. So to over-communicate, I find that I will get anxiety if I don't communicate something or if it seems like communication is lacking in whatever situation. So for me, a lot of the pondering thoughts and rumination and social anxiety that comes up for me is because of a lack of communication. If someone lets me know directly what they're thinking or what they plan to do or vice versa, if I'm communicating and I let someone know, hey, this is what I'm going to do because of X, Y, Z, then they don't have to think, okay, well, why is she doing this? And why is he doing this? And why is what's going on? So I really try to over communicate depending on the situation to help eliminate extraneous thinking or extraneous anxious thoughts. And then the second one is I actually follow what my gut says. So if something's not feeling right to me or if my intuition says, hmm, you're invited to this dinner party, you should probably bring a bottle of wine or a nice house plant or some housewarming gift, but I know I'm crunched for time today and I'm doing a hundred different errands and I have things to do and I have this podcast episode to record. I don't have time to go pick something up. Maybe I'll just show up empty-handed. But my gut says, hmm, you should not show up empty-handed. You should probably bring a gift. So I could make a decision in that situation of, hmm, I just am too busy. They'll understand. I'm just not going to bring a gift. I'll bring something next time. I just can't get it done today. And if I did that and showed up empty-handed, I would have anxiety over, hmm, they probably think I'm a bad guest. I didn't bring anything. This is terrible. Oh, I'm insecure about who I am now. You know, like all of these ruminating anxious thoughts. So I over-communicate and then I actually follow what my gut says. If something feels right, if something feels wrong, I listen to it and I actually do it. The fourth one It kind of goes hand in hand with the eliminating anxiety, but I connect with others and hang out with others whenever I can. So historically for me, hanging out with people or going to social events, it was such a big task. I think I would consider myself an introverted extrovert. I think that's the right term. (laughs) But social situations... It always felt so energy consuming because I had to be positive and be happy and really listen and engage with what they're saying and make sure that they like me. And it just felt like so much energy to be this perfect person and just even have a social conversation or just even grab coffee with someone or going to a party. Like these, these are things that would really drain my energy because of that social anxiety. This stems from learning self-compassion and self-love and accepting the human in me, which has been a hard practice to practice, especially coming from being the elite critical perfectionist athlete. 
where nothing was ever good enough and the smallest of errors was the worst thing in the world. That's how I used to be. But now when it comes to just connecting with people or having conversations or hanging out, that's all it is. It's connection. Brene Brown explains connection is why we're here. Connecting with others for me now is just simple. It's not some huge ordeal. There's not some ulterior motives. It's simply to just pass the time on earth with another human being. And I'm really less concerned with what people think of me. Okay, I might say something stupid. Yeah, I'm a human being. (laughs) I know I'm me and I'm confidently me. So regardless of whatever they think of me after the social hangout, if they think I'm, oh, well, I don't want to hang out with her anymore. Or, hmm, I don't like her. Or, hmm, she's a little weird. (laughs) Or whatever, whatever could be. I don't waste ruminating anxious thoughts over that anymore because I'm confident in who I am. I know who I am. I'm a good person. I mean well. And I accept all parts of my human so I can do no wrong when it comes to hanging out with others or connecting with others. There's nothing I could say or do that would be detrimental enough to cause me to be anxious anymore. Okay, number five is... Reading the book, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. This is a super popular self-help personal development book. The Four Agreements, there are four principles that you should live your life by, but there are two of them I really, really take to heart. The two that I really practice are don't take things personally and always do your best. So don't take things personally. I mean, definitely just read the book. I'll do a poor job of explaining it as well as he can. I mean, he's the author, but he just explains that whatever people do to you or say to you, it's never because of you, right? If you're having a bad day and you lash out at the person making your coffee, it has nothing to do with that coffee person. It has everything to do with you having a bad day. And it really is true. So I've really practiced just not taking things personally. I think that's been a huge shift for me. I would always think it's about me or I'm the cause of it or I'm the main character or I'm I'm the one that they're mad at. Just reading his book and his take on not taking things personally and embodying that and actually practicing that. If someone wants to be an ugly person and wants to be mean, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. And then the second one from his book that I really love is Always Do Your Best. I talk about this a lot, but if you do the best that you can, no more, no less, how can you refute your outcome or what happens? It's a really good perspective to have to not overthink the results of a situation. Hey, I did the best I could in that moment. I'm still a human being. I did what I could and I'm not going to sit here and waste my energy and anxious thoughts on what could have been or how I could have done things differently or how the situation could have played out because... Again, I did my best in that situation, no more, no less. So why am I going to refute the outcome or spend time ruminating on what could have been? Okay, the sixth one, this is a simple one, but I called it maintenance of the human being. So the two bullet points I put under this one are taking walks in nature and just connecting with nature. And then I also put deep breathing. Okay, so for deep breathing, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I feel like I don't breathe when I'm sleeping because every morning when I wake up, I'll take a couple of deep breaths and I feel like life is being breathed into me. I feel like, I feel 
feel like I just go to sleep and don't breathe and wake up eight hours later. <laughs> so deep breathing, I do this practice that's called four, seven, eight. So it's four counts of a deep breath in, seven counts of holding your breath in the deepest part of your lungs, and then eight counts of slowly breathing that air out. And if you do that for three or four or five times um, and you test your blood pressure, your blood pressure actually comes down. So just maintenance of my human body, doing some deep breaths, and then also walking in nature. Nature is just natural for our species. We are human beings, a part of the larger earth with earth, wind, air, land, fire. I don't don't know how it goes, but just being part of this earth and being part of this planet and getting out in nature, it's calming. Being by a river is calming. Going for a hike, it's calming. So just taking the time to make sure I'm getting outside, especially today with all of the screens that we have and I'm constantly looking down at my phone or looking at my computer screen. So getting outside and making sure it sounds so cheesy, but looking to the tops of the trees, like taking five minutes to just look up, like look to the sky, look to the tops of the trees, look around at just the nature around me just makes me feel small on this planet. And it just feels, it just feels good. Okay. Number seven, this is huge. I probably should have put this first or closer to the top. I mean, these are in no order, but it's to help others. So whenever an opportunity presents itself to make someone else's life easier or better or sweeter, I will always try to do what I can to help. I'm a sucker for giving the homeless person at the intersection a dollar bill or a couple bills. I talk about this in other episodes, but helping others is largely where I find purpose in my life. If I can go out of my way to make someone's existence on this planet a little bit better, I'm going to do that. That has lasting value. That has lasting meaning. That feels good for both me and the other person. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from Andre Agassi. He's someone, okay, Andre Agassi, top men's tennis player in the 90s and early 2000s. He had everything, was married to Brooke Shields, had the celebrity marriage, traveled to the Caribbean, traveled to the private islands, had the fancy cars, won the Grand Slam titles. Like on the surface, it's like, okay, he's living the the dream. He's living the American dream. But for him, even with all those external things, money, fame, accolades, marriage, all of these things, he still says in his autobiography, it's called Open. It came out in 2009. He explains that the purpose behind life and where he finds purpose and why we're here on this planet is to help others. So this is the excerpt from his book. A look of pure relief and gratitude and joy washes over her face. And in this look, in this courageous little girl, I find the thing I've been seeking. The philosopher's stone that unites all the experiences, good and bad, of the last few years. Her suffering, her resilient smile in the face of that suffering, my part in easing her suffering. This, this is the reason for everything. How many times must I be shown? This is why we're here, to fight through the pain and when possible, to relieve the pain of others. So simple, so hard to see. I absolutely love that excerpt from his book. He so eloquently embodies that helping others and doing for others is largely why we're here and drives meaning and purpose in our own lives. 
So that's what I try to do whenever I can. I try to help others. Those are the first seven ingredients for how I live with quote unquote good mental health. Stay tuned for next week's episode to hear the final seven ingredients that make up the recipe for my good mental health. If you're enjoying the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, here's to thriving.